All right, welcome to day 61 of our journey through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11 through the end of chapter 8, Psalm 28, and then Mark 11, verses 1 through 25. Okay, so let's begin here with, um, with, with Leviticus chapter 7. And uh, here we are uh, reading about instructions for peace offerings. So there's various different purposes for peace offerings, and two of the prominent ones that we see here um, are thanksgiving offerings and then offerings that have to do with the uh, with both vows or uh, simply a free will offering. Um, those are two different kinds. We've also seen them associated with the consecration of priests, as we will when we get to chapter 8, which we will momentarily. Um, but here, yeah, we have um, some regulations for various kinds of peace offerings. So, um, if it is a, uh, off, a thanksgiving offering, you're to add a grain offering, of, uh, loaves and wafers unleavened, um, as well as, interestingly, a leavened um, piece of bread. Now, uh, of course, uh, we've already read that that is n not allowed on the altar. You cannot put leaven on the altar. So this is uh, presumably presented, um, although not placed on the altar and burned. Um, it is also to be eaten in one day, and anything that is left over... Um, on analogy with the vow or free will offering that we see in verse 17, would probably have been burned. Um, now, speaking of the vow and free will offering here, um, you, you are allowed to eat it on the day of and the next day, but on the third day it is to be burned. And um, the entire offering is not accepted if it is eaten on the third day. Uh, we also have a clarification that no animal that has touched something unclean is to be eaten. And uh, this seems like it's still talking here about the peace offering. Um, the, so verse 20, the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of Yahweh's peace offerings while an uncleanliness is on him. Okay, so that's clearly eating part of the offering. Um, and so, yeah, so the offering can't touch anything unclean. Uh, the person eating it must be ritually clean. And, uh, the, of course, what that means the rest of Leviticus will flesh out a little bit, and uh, we're not at the point quite yet where I'm diving into those categories with you. Okay, we also see of the peace offering uh, that um, the Lord has his his own portion, which is not surprising. We've seen that with most of the offerings, well, all of the offerings, um, and that is the part that's burned on the altar, the Isha, the offering by fire or food offering, as the ESV has it. Uh, and this is to be the fat, which is pr placed on the altar. The breast is then to be taken and used as a wave offering. So the priest goes and, and holds it in the air and waves it around. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then um, that is for Aaron and his sons, the breast of the peace offerings. And the right thigh is specifically for the priest who's offering the sacrifice. And this is called the perpetual due from the people of Israel's peace offerings. So this is um, to be uh, established throughout their generations. Then, of course, you have a little bit of a summary in verses 37 and 38 um, 
for of of everything that's come uh, before. This is the law of the burnt offering, grain offering, sin offering, guilt offering, and uh, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering. Uh, then we go to chapter eight, and we see Moses um, taking Aaron and his sons and preparing them for priestly duty. So. Um, the congregation is to be gathered at the entrance of the tent of meeting, which they do. Moses then goes and washes Aaron and his sons, and then he first dresses Aaron. Um, then he goes and he anoints with oil the tabernacle and all of its furniture and the other whatever else needed to be anointed in there, as well as Aaron himself. Uh, he then dresses Aaron's sons, the other, the other priests there. And brings forth several offerings, uh, which we are all familiar with. And indeed, this procedure has already been prescribed. So the bull of the sin offering is brought forward. They lay their hands on it. Um, it, it is killed, um, and its its blood is placed onto is smeared onto the horns of the altar, and the rest is poured out at the base of the altar. Then the fat on the entrails. The long lobe of the liver, the kidneys, and their fat are placed on the offering and burned, whereas the rest of the rest of the offering, its skin, its flesh, its dung, is burned outside of the camp. And th- so this is a sin offering. This is an offering of cleansing. Then you have uh, a ram brought forward for a burnt offering. They lay their hands on it. They kill it. Its blood is um, applied to the sides of the altar. Uh, then it is washed and it is burned. And then finally, the ram of the ordination offering, which is uh, apparently a kind of peace offering. And um, so they, and you could tell that by the, the way that the procedure looks. Uh, the hands are laid on the animal, it's killed, its blood is then placed on Aaron's ear, his thumb, and his toe, on his right thumb, right toe. Uh, right ear, and then um, the same goes for his sons, and uh, then the blood is placed on the side of the altar. So the idea being uh, apparently, and again, this is a little bit theoretical, but that just as you apply to the horns the things that stick out of the altar, here are the the, the equivalent on a human being: the the ear, thumb, and toe. Uh, the fat, fat tail the fat on the entrails, the long lobe of the liver, the kidneys and their fat. Um, the, the, uh, they're all placed on the altar. Uh, the right thigh is then taken, um, and uh, as well as a basket with uh, one unleavened loaf and one unleavened wafer. And these are all offered to the Lord. And uh, the, then you, uh, Moses takes some of the oil and the blood. He sprinkles it on Aaron and his sons. And Moses tells um, Aaron to eat of the offering and that what is left over is to be burned. So this would be um, similar to apparently a a Thanksgiving offering, peace offering, where you you have to eat it all that day. Um, And then for seven days, the priests are, Aaron and his sons are to remain um, in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And that is their anointing, their consecration as priests. Okay, now hopping over to Psalm 28. Once again, we have a Psalm of David. And here um, we have the Lord um, appealed to um, as as being powerful on behalf of 
the person who loves him, who who seeks him, and in particularly uh, in particular his anointed. So the anoint that that of course refers to the king. We see this in verse eight, where he the Lord is the saving refuge of his anointed. Um, but yeah, a lot of these these power uh, these power metaphors being used for God. Um, to you, O Yahweh, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. And then down in verse seven, my strength, my shield. Um, verse eight, the uh, the Lord is the strength of His people. He's the saving refuge of His anointed. He is their shepherd. Um, so this is yeah. Uh, David is crying out for the Lord to hear him, to not be silent, and um, and uh, notice the posture of prayer here, one that we don't typically practice much today, but when I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, as we've been seeing the primacy of the tabernacle, and which will be the temple under Solomon, David's son, uh, is is in the forefront, as it has been in a bunch of the Psalms we've been reading. And then he he asks that the Lord not drag him off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. And then you have this uh, sh- short stanza of imprecation that is uh, uh, calling upon the Lord to act justly towards the unrighteous, as particularly those who are set on harming David or the psalmist or whoever is uh, praying this psalm, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds, give to them according to the work of their hands, render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of Yahweh or the works of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. So, of course, this is an attitude that typically when we're talking about living as Jesus' disciples, right? We are to pray for our enemies and love our enemies. And uh, so the psalms like this, these imprecatory psalms, can sometimes be, you know, challenging in view of that. Um, Now, one thing that I have pointed out before, and I'll point out again, is that uh, the psalms are a little bit tricky because they are, um, essentially, you're looking at David or, or whoever, the psalmist, uh, you're looking at their prayer life, and you're looking at the conditions of their hearts and the things that they cried in their anguish when they appealed to the Lord. And so the, the, the extent to which we can draw normative practice and doctrine directly from uh, the psalms, I'm not saying you can't, but you have to be a little bit cautious with it. Um, on the other hand, I'm not going to say that this is totally just David being a sinner here, right? It is another very important aspect of, uh, let's just call it the attitude of the righteous toward the wicked in the Bible, is one of a cry for justice, okay? It's, it's not as if the only biblical posture to have is, Lord, save the wicked, turn them from their evil ways. Obviously, we pray that, yes, and that is at the front of, you know, our heart towards even those who persecute us, even those who hurt us. Um, but it's important to realize that in Scripture, and if you don't believe this, just wait till we get to Revelation, 
um, even in the New Testament, right? There is a crying out for justice against those who hate the Lord and hate those who follow him. And uh, that that's not, I, I don't think that that's antithetical towards a prayer that they would be turned, but if they are dead set in their ways, then the, the, the judgment of God against the wicked is not portrayed in the Bible as this terrible thing. No, it is a good thing that God judges sin. Again, that's not all that can be said about it, but uh, our God is good. He is just. He is righteous. And when he judges wickedness, that is part of him being who he is in all his fullness. Okay, we, we, we don't do ourselves any favor if we only emphasize certain attributes of God to the detriment of the others. Um, so, like, you, we don't do ourselves a favor if we so um, emphasize the love of God that we run roughshod over the other important attributes of God that balance that, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. Those are all things that are on the table. Those are all attributes that um, God exercises when he deals with his creatures in the many ways that he does. Okay, let's look to uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. Here we have Mark's version of the triumphal entry. Um, Mark is um, much less uh, invested in, uh, the, in, in Zechariah, right? The, the idea of the king count coming on a donkey. Here, um, that's Matthew who draws that out. Here, Mark isn't even drawing attention to that this is a donkey. He just calls it a, a colt. Uh, in Greek, it's polos, which basically just means like a young animal. So as far as I'm aware, this totally be a, a young donkey if we're concerned about it's um, the, the, the way in which this coheres with what Matthew says. Um, the people also... Um, are much more explicit in Mark, and that's probably because of Mark's concern with the identity of Jesus and those whom we would not expect being on the right page as far as he's concerned, whereas those who are closest to him uh, are still confused. They're, they're still uh, somewhat dim. Uh, so we just saw a blind man, right, who didn't even see Jesus, um, seeing more than the disciples have seen. And then here, when the when Jesus enters Jerusalem, they cry out from Psalm 118, verse 25, which is what, what Matthew has as well, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bless, and But then they add this, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So this explicit enthusiastic confession of who he is. Um, I I do want to say, when I do comment on the, you know, the contrast here with the disciples, the disciples have, in all fairness to them, they, we do have the confession of Peter that's already happened in chapter 8, right? You are the Christ, you are the Messiah. So essentially, like, they understand as much as the crowd does. But I think the point here is that here are people who haven't spent uh, all this time with Jesus so far, and they and they immediately recognize him as he is, and for who he is. 
And then Jesus does something interesting, right? He goes into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and it says, when he looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he just kind of walks in, looks around, and then leaves the city and goes to where they're staying in Bethany. And then on the next day, he comes, and he's hungry, and he sees a fig tree in the distance, and... Um, he goes to see if there's anything on it, and when he can't, comes to it, <clears throat> he finds nothing but leaves, and then he curses the fig tree, may no one ever eat from you again, and his disciples heard it, Mark notes. Um, so, make no mistake, there is heavy symbolic um, influence here with Jerusalem being compared to a fig tree. Uh, this is... Uh, taken from the Old Testament. We do see this in the Old Testament. A good example would be Micah chapter 7, uh, which begins, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. And you're like, well, what does that mean? But then you read the next verse, the godly has perished from the earth, and there is none, no one upright among mankind. Um, and so I think the idea that he's checking out Jerusalem, checking out the temple, and then checking out this fig tree, and this fig and the, the fig tree is like the Jerusalem establishment. The Jerusalem establishment is like the fig tree. Uh, it fails to bring forth fruit. Now there is a little weird addition that Mark uh, adds here, and um, uh, he notes that it was not the season for figs, and that's why there was just leaves on the tree. Um, Matthew did not uh, mention that aspect of it, and I think what's going on there is that the fig tree should be expected to bear fruit whenever the Son of God comes to it, uh, not just when it's ready. So here it's out of season, it's not ready, um, and there's no fruit on it. I think that's the point of telling us about the season there. Then Jesus goes in to the temple, and he goes and he begins overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he's not allowing anyone to bring stuff into the temple. Okay, we saw this also in Mark. We also saw, I'm sorry, in Matthew. We also saw how uh, the connection um, that 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 Jesus makes with Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. I noted back in Matthew the strong emphasis on the need to reach Gentiles, which Matthew, I think, is stronger on that than Mark. Mark's not as explicit as Matthew is with that. Uh, but the point being that Isaiah 56 is all about how um, the other nations are going to come, and they're going to be welcomed into God's fold. Um, and here, these guys have set up shop in the court of the Gentiles in the in the temple, and the, so this is a place where those seeking the Lord, who are outsiders, whom the Lord wants to bring in, this is where they are welcome to worship, and they have made it a place of business. Um. And then they leave, they're, they're going out of the city, and uh, in the morning they come back, and that fig tree that Jesus cursed is withered. And uh, Peter uh, remembers and says to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
uh, amazed. And, and Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them a little bit about faith, okay? Have faith in God, and we've seen how it is faith that makes people well. The blind man uh, we saw, we saw the woman with the discharge, her faith made her well. Um, and uh, Jesus then tells them about the power of faith, that you could say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, um, and uh, it will be done. And then Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. Um, the idea not being that this is some kind of magical spell, like if I can conjure up enough belief in my heart for anything I want to pray for, then no, there's too much other stuff in the Bible to say that that is what Jesus means here. Um, most notably that he's about to go and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, and yet submit himself to the Father's will, not your will, but mine be done. And indeed, the thing that Jesus is praying for, that the cup be taken from him, is not. So I think those are some things that we need to keep in mind uh, when we when we read passages like this about prayer. And... Um, and then also that when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your, you your trespasses as well. Um, that centrality of forgiveness uh, being essential to discipleship. Okay, that's it for today. Uh, thank you again for joining me, and I very much look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Until then, keep reading Scripture. Take care. Bye-bye.